Welcome back to another episode of season two of Stern Chats. Today's guest is an NYU Stern professor, Scott Galloway, who's known for his daring teaching style, market prophecies, and expertise in the world of brand strategy. His new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google is in stores this October. So Sherry, tell us a little bit more about Professor Galloway. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern, where he teaches brand strategy and digital marketing. Professor Galloway is also the founder of several firms, but most notably, L2, a subscription business intelligence firm serving prestige brands. He was also named one of the 50 best MBA professors in the world by Poets and Quants, a leading MBA online publication. Sherry, that's a great bio, but I guess the challenge when writing a bio for Professor Scott Galloway is which accomplishments do you leave in? Because we could be here all day. He's so accomplished. There's just way too many to choose from. If you don't know any of the ones that Sherry listed, you'll probably at least know him from his popular YouTube videos called Winners and Losers, which have millions and millions of views. I just can't wait to hear from him in person. Yeah. Well, Sherry, what do you think? Should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Hey there, listeners. We're here with Professor Scott Galloway, professor, writer, founder of L2. Professor Galloway, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So first things first, one of the most exciting things that's happening very soon, October 3rd, you have a book coming out. It's called The Four. Full title is The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. That is a big deal. you got to be pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's my first book. Thanks for bringing it up. I'm excited about it. It's taken a long time, but yeah, it should be... um Writing, I think writing a book is one of those things. It's like serving in the Marines. You're glad you did it. It's a lot of work, and everyone tells you it'll be a lot of work. But, yeah, we're excited about it. Would you say this is like a culmination of just, like, all of the insights that you've had for, like, you know, your professional career, at least recently? Yeah, well, as my stepmom says, I could fill a book with everything I don't know, and I think that this is that book. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I'm very focused on the four. We refer to them, as you said, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, and how much power they've aggregated and what an important role they play in our society and think about and do a lot of research on those firms and uh, try to pull it together to hopefully give readers an advantage in, a, in an economy where it's never been easier to be a billionaire or harder to be a millionaire. So yeah, we're excited about it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I guess people can pre-order on Amazon uh, now, uh, but if it's act after October 3rd, just go ahead and buy it. Just buy it first. Or, or, or steal it from a weaker person. There you go. You know, yeah, what, what, yeah. whatever you need to do. Uh, so you're a writer. You founded L2. You've had an incredible career. You're famous for being a YouTube star. You've had millions of views on your YouTube channel, Winners and Losers. Yeah. But for students here, the most important thing is probably that you're a professor because they, they work with you directly. Yeah, it's my identity. When people ask me what I do, I say I'm a, I'm a teacher. I've been on the faculty here for 15 years. It's been a wonderful experience for me. I've taught, I think, uh, about 62 or 6,300 kids to date. And... Uh, one of the professors here uh, asked me how many how many kids I'd had in my class, and I told him at that time it had been about 5,700, and he said, that means if you're ever in a room of more 
more than 200 people, there's about a 38% chance you have an alumni in the audience. And so whenever I speak, and I speak all over the world to big crowds, if I'm in a room with more than 300 people, the first thing I do is I cite that statistic and I ask, is there any alum in the class? And it's amazing how many times a kid will throw up his hand from the far end of the auditorium and say, yeah, Stern 05. So it's very rewarding. It's, it's nice to have so many, you know, kids out there, if you will. So. It's a really important role, not only in like Stern, but also in society, it, about pursuing the truth, right? About real truth. Why is being a professor so important to you? Well, it was, it's something I always wanted to do. I originally thought I was going to be an academic and planned to get my PhD and ended up capitating my graduate work at MBA for personal reasons and just always wanted to get back to teaching. And so I promised myself within 10 years of graduating from uh, business school that I would return to academia in almost 10 years to date. After I graduated, I um, joined the faculty here at Stern. And academia in general is, is a really... I think a wonderful notion that you're trying to bring people into the light, enlighten them, and in business school, we're trying to help kids gain the skills to create economic security for them and their families, uh, which I think is a is a nice thing. And academic research is focused on peer review and pursuing the truth regardless of who it offends. That's the basis of tenure. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if you know this, but the whole notion of tenure is that you can say things that are offensive or might upset society or the economy, but you have some protection, so you're given yeah. you're given license to pursue the truth. Truth's not always fair. There you go, or or you know palatable or right politically correct or what have you. Um, I know I'm not sure. You could argue tenure's gone you know gone a bit of muck and the amount of the cost and the waste. And I'm not sure we're saying anything that controversial here. You know, most of our stuff is around gap laws and whether the federal raise interest rates. So I wonder if, if it's gotten a little bit out of control, but the general principles are really nice. And you guys feel when you come on campus, it's a nice place to be. It's a nice place Univers- to be. Universities are great environments. So I feel very, very fortunate to be here. So, you know, something that I do, and I think Frank does the same when we're looking for classes, we mm-hmm. look at the content of the course and see if mm-hmm. it's of interest to us. But mostly we choose the courses because the professors are known for being really dynamic and interesting and engaged with the students. So when you were initially starting crafting your curriculum, did you also think about like the persona and who you wanted to bring to class every day? Yeah, so my first class only had about 28 kids enroll and I got really low ratings. And it was really, really? jarring. And they wait, almost, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> 28 kids? I had 20, I don't, uh, yeah, 28. My, I remember this. My first brand strategy class in 2002 I had an enrollment of 28 kids and I got really low scores. I got high fours or low fives. And Russ Weiner, the chair of the department at that time, said, you know, they weren't sure if they were going to ask me to teach again. So you get a lot of very granular, like painfully granular feedback from your students. And uh, I tried to iterate and slowly but surely brought in more stuff around digital and you develop kind of your voice, if you will. But I'm curious, do students pick classes based on ratings, enrollments, or just the brand of the professor? What What is it? I think the brand of the professor is one of yeah. the most important things, honestly. And I mean, I mean, your classes now, you're talking like a stadium of, of, of kids. So, I mean, obviously, like... Everyone has heard that your classes are phenomenal, so people get in. I mean, I mean, we probably have different processes. For me, I think of the professor first, Yeah. right? Um, and then I go to the ratings. Yeah. I do look at the ratings. There is a, a portal. It, there is somewhere there's a portal, and they literally rate on different metrics. You know, how hard was it? How insightful was it? Yeah. And then I look at that second. But I think, I think like anything, reputation, for me at least, is the mo- most important. Yeah. Because my, my ratings are actually not that high. I get in my department chair reminds me of this consistently. I get more ones than I think any professor in the university. So I d- there's a 
there's a non-material segment of my population that really hates the class. Well, I I think it sort of goes back to what you were saying about, you know, speaking the truth and being controversial and sort of having a platform to, you know, to do just that. You know, what what do you want ultimately your your students to get out of the class? So I teach because uh, business school is transformative for me. I came from, you know, what I refer to as an upper lower middle class household. And business school really did give me the contacts, the skill set and the credentialing to build a really nice uh, life economically and do something I like and make a good living at it. And my objective in the class is to give people sort of the weapons to create economic security for them and their families. I think that's why we go to work. I think that's why we come to business school. And I'm very focused on that and specifically some of the tools around some of these new platforms and technologies that I think carry kids a little farther or give them an edge versus their peer group out in the workforce. So full stop, I want people to come out of the class more prepared for the workplace and feel as if they have an advantage over their peers such that they can, again, build economic security for them and their families. I think the mission of a business school is to help create a middle class or a thriving middle class. And so that's kind of what I'm focused on. That group of kids you're talking to, you know, commonly referred to as millennials. Yep. You know, we're all fans of Winners and Losers, the YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> we feel like you, you've gone back and forth on millennials. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense because there's a lot of like upside to millennials, and then, yeah. you know, there's there's some downside. What do you see lacking in students, or at least this generation of students, that you'd like to, like, bolster? Uh, you know, I would say that, well, first off, millennials are super impressive as a group. The students get better every year. And when, when someone complains like me about millennials, there's two sides of the trade. We wouldn't, we wouldn't hire them if we didn't think on a balanced scorecard it was worth it. Right. So they're more t- let's start with the good stuff. They're more talented. They're harder working. They were generally brought up in an educational environment that was more competitive. It's harder to get into the right high schools. It's harder to, much harder to get into the right colleges. They're much more comfortable with technology. They just get these things intuitively that we're all uh, some of the previous generations are struggling with. Some of the downsides, I think that there, the, a lot of millennials were raised in an environment where everyone's kind of a winner and they've been told, and there's some good and some bad to this, to expect the world. And when I first got out of uh, UCLA and I went to work for Morgan Stanley, the idea of going into my boss's office and saying, I would like to discuss my career, it just wouldn't, that conversation wouldn't have gone well. The, the conversation would have been, work your ass off and get back to work. That's kind of would have been the sort of the career coaching. Now uh, you have to create almost like this Xanadu work environment with free food and bring their dogs to work. And we have champagne Fridays. At Ping L2. pong tables and jeans. And check in regularly and make sure they feel good about their career and their trajectory. And the reason why you have to do that is because these kids, the good ones, have a lot of options. And on a shareholder basis, the people who are most we get the, you get the greatest return from now. Our millennials, some of these kids coming out who are 24, 25, are outstanding. So it's a trade. There's, they're a little bit more expectant. You know, you could argue maybe a little bit more spoiled, uh, but they can, they can be that way. It's like, why are billionaires eccentric? Because they can be. So millennials are more expectant, a little bit more difficult to manage because uh, they can be. They're the most, they are the most talented generation so far. Don't you think that it's sort of benefits the millennials bosses and and the you know generation before them as well though because in general you know the the workplace environment is perhaps more friendly and inviting and you know you can work from home and don't mm-hmm. do you think that the the benefits are spread amongst the whole 
workforce? Do the benefits work upstream? I, I guess uh, it's it's just you spend more of your time managing, petting, and reinforcing <laughs> and kind of counseling, I think, than w- we ever had. When I was, you know, again, I, I, I've only ever had one job, and after that I've always started my own companies, but I worked at Vernon Investment Bank, and you sort of got one piece of feedback every year, and it was your bonus, and that was it. There was no, and I th- I'm sure things have even changed out Morgan Stanley. And, you know, I used to work on a regular basis. I would work all night, and you did not leave your – I'm not saying this is a good thing. But you just didn't leave your office until everyone senior to you had already left. And, uh, you know, I realize this sounds like, March, you know, walking through snow to get to school. But things have just changed dramatically. I think most of the changes are – you know, you're right, probably better for everybody. But there is there – is it's hard for someone my age or just a little bit um, shocking to see – that w- when I entered the workforce, I felt grateful to have a job, and now the it's flipped. It's it's the general expectation is the company should be grateful to have you. Uh, so it's just changed the the gestalt and the environment. Having said that, two sides of the trade. The reason the companies and CEOs and founders like myself put up with it is you guys are super talented and worth the money and worth uh, worth the pain in the ass you all are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the I like the compliment. I I mean, I'll, ta- I'll take it. I mean, you're no stranger to hard work. Um, we did some reading on your bio, and yeah. you know, you installed shelves, and then you, um, you know, worked some odd jobs, and then. You know, here you are. You own the house next to Mark Zuckerberg at some point. Uh, Yeah, and sold it. (laughs) Not the best. Yeah, good idea. What a great idea. The paparazzi was too overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. No, I thought I bought a house in San Francisco, and I thought, and three years later, I sold it to move to New York, and I thought, I just made a killing on it, and now I'm sure it's worth about 10 times more than I sold it for. But uh, You might uh, might have short-stroked that one. Yeah, no, that wasn't a great move. Not one of my better moments. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think what Sherry brings up is, I mean, when you see the finished product, mm-hmm. you've been an amazingly successful guy. We come in, we're students, and we see that, and we gravitate towards it. But you didn't start there. You know, people don't yeah. necessarily hear about the, hey, I was installing shelves part right away. Yeah, well, I just, uh, so I think one of the really wonderful things about education, education is just this tremendous lubricant for upward mobility. And it's super easy to credit your character and your talent with your successes and then blame the markets for your failures. I'm, I have no delusions that the two things, and I think about this a lot, that have enabled me to lead a really wonderful life professionally are, one, your rational passion, you know, my mother had for my well-being. I think everybody needs someone in their life that takes a huge interest in them growing up. And two, government, specifically the University of California, it was very generous to me. I got to go to school for free, and I got an MBA, and an undergraduate degree, and you guys will appreciate this, my total tuition for undergrad and grad was, I think, about $7,000 all the way through oh undergrad and grad. So, I want that. I just, like, broke are, out into full yeah. body sweat. I want just, that. <laughs> just, you know, they're, they're rubbing their temples right now. And he's, so <laughs> I've got, I, I owe, um, and I'm going to do some virtue signaling and patting myself on the back, I've Feel just free. underwritten an endowment for the children of in- immigrants at Cal, which I'm really excited about. And it's just me nodding my head to the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the regents of UC, but big government and state-supported education were, were life-changing for me and took me, literally lifted me up out of kind of the lower middle class and gave me just incredible opportunities. So education for me is a very, a very personal thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, both a teaching 
and um, giving some money back to some of the public schools. I want to make sure that the hand that lifted me up, if you will, uh, uh, remains extended. I think it was just, uh, it was, it was, you know, life-changing for me, full stop. You know, I, if you don't know you personally or maybe haven't, like, spent a lot of time with you and you only see your persona on YouTube, you know, I mean, the channel, I mean, it's literally called Winners and Losers, yep. right? Someone has to be a loser like that, yep. you know. You could say, like, that's kind of harsh, right? You're very assertive. You're very aggressive. I mean, even on the winners and losers, you're white-knuckling that table, staring directly into the camera. Yeah. I mean, you have an intensity to you. But then if you read some of your writing, yep. um, for specifically No Mercy, No Malice, yep. you'll talk about a very complicated business concept. You'll break yep. it down. And then the second half is the part that I like the best. The second half is about love and empathy and life stories yep. and things that are meaningful to you. I actually, like, I just started reading the second half. Yep. Of no mercy, you no mouth. You skipped the first part. <laughs> well, look, you got to remember, I That's had half okay. an MBA, because, and sometimes yeah, yeah. I don't have the horsepower to keep up. Like, yeah, I get halfway through, I and get like, it. Mm, I don't know. I get it. But the, 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 like, the life story you, you, you said always yeah. kind of stuck with me, right? Yeah. Why do you feel like it's important to share that? You know, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I, it's important to share. That stuff I just really enjoy. It's almost like therapy for me, exploring that aspect of I me. Mean, I think if... You know, when you, you guys don't have to think about this stuff, but you get to you get to my age and you start realizing that your time here is finite. I'm an atheist. I think once, you know, once I draw my last breath, I think that is the last time I'm going to see, you know, the people I love and and, and they see me. God, that got serious fast. Um, Dark. But, <laughs> but I want you know I, I'm writing this. I write that p- part of it because I want my kids to be able to understand who I was, and even if I was intense and a bit of a jerk and quiet, which I am a lot of the time, that I was thinking these things and felt these things and. I just really enjoy it. I get it's it's selfish. It's tremendously rewarding for me to write these things, and uh, it's almost like I said, it's kind of my therapy. The medium, the mediums evoke different reactions. So my videos, I get recognized on the street, and it's almost always a guy who works for a tech firm, and he comes up and sort of high fives me, and I, dude, bro, I love your videos. They're hilarious. You're the bomb, or whatever. <laughs> and then on the the no mercy, no malice, the written word doesn't get as much appeal or excitement, but it resonates with people in a much more emotional way. The medium has a much different impact on people, and I get I get full-page emails from, from mothers talking about some of their, some of the issues they're talking about, or dads, and it just hits people in a different way. The medium is much different, just the way I, when you teach, teaching is a medium. Every kid I see in the workplace, uh, when I run into kids, they're just all so nice, and they have such goodwill for you, and it's a, it's a, it's a nice thing. So, Every medium has a different response and resonates with people in a different way, but it's all universally, uh, universally positive. And it's, as you said, it's nice to have to try and experiment with both those dimensions. The video is a chance to be irreverent and provocative and funny and sort of, you know, just crazy. And then the written word, though, really forces you to look at every word and, and try and read it and say, what, what emotions or, or synapses are firing here and are these the ones I want? People to fire with the videos. You just kind of you just kind of let it rip. Yeah, that's like a roller coaster. Yeah, it's you fun. know, yeah, and that I, I feel like with the winners and losers videos too, I, it's short and it's punchy and it's data driven and, it, mm-hmm. and it and it sticks. It really yeah. like I know from watching it, like eh, I don't know if I'd buy that Snapchat. Yeah, I got, you know, <laughs> I don't have Blue Apron. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, again, half an MBA. Like I'm still working on why, but I know it's probably not doing so good. Yeah, it's snackable. It, 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 we try to do. The great thing about the, the medium and not being ad-supported is you can do whatever you want. And so, for example, we did a, we typically do three minutes, but yesterday I brought in uh, Professor David Yermak, who chairs the finance department here, to talk about cryptocurrencies. 
And we went probably 45 minutes, and we'll edit it down to 30, but I'll post it next week. So instead of three minutes, it'll be 30, and we can do whatever we want. So it's, we have a lot of fun with the medium, but generally we try and keep it really crisp because people your age want snackable, crisp content. They want stuff that's like, give me the data, make it entertaining, and then kind of get, get me back to my coffee, my work, my Netflix Snapchat and yeah, whatever. What so else you guys yeah. do? I think it's really interesting. <laughs> like shuffleboard in Brooklyn. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to go back to pickling hey, things. Hey, shuffleboard and, is yeah. fun. Yeah. No, oh, come on, man. There's a whole bunch of people in Brooklyn like wearing skinny jeans, like riding that bicycle with like one really big front wheel. You oh, know what I mean? It's just like it. it's too much, Sherry. But I think it is interesting that you use the word snackable and crisp, um, mm-hmm. which delicious evokes um, just sort of like eating and like sort of a bodily function and mm-hmm. something that we noticed in a lot of your pieces is that you make connections between these companies and what mm-hmm. they evoke mm-hmm. physiologically almost in mm-hmm. us so whether it's to our hearts or to other anatomy yep. um, so where did that come from so uh, I used to tell kids that when to take more English classes and I was thought that in business, to be a better business person, you should uh, be a better writer. And now I've come to believe that the best business training undergrad is evolutionary biology or just straight biology courses. And if you look at everything begins and ends with kind of cell life and growth and death and all business mimics bi- biology. These are organisms and they, they mimic other organisms. And kind of the basis of the book and a lot of my teaching is that I think that you have to be clear about the organ you are appealing to in business. And I kind of break it down into four basic things, each represented by Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. So I think Google appeals to our brain and our spiritual self, and I think Google is God, that as as societies become more educated and affluent, they become less dependent upon religion, there's less likely to go to church. At the same time, modern-day anxieties and problems become even bigger and the questions become even bigger. So there's this void, and I think that void is being filled by Google. If you look at the questions posed to Google, one in six queries have never been asked before in the history of mankind. And there isn't a rabbi, a priest, a scholar, a professor, a coach, a mentor, a boss that has so much credibility that one in six queries posed to that person have never been asked before. So I would argue that Google has more authority than any entity around us and takes on this sort of super being-like status. And what do you do when you pray? You send up into the heavens a question, will my kid be all right? And now it's symptoms and treatment of croup into the Google query box because you believe that some sort of divine intervention will take place in your query and this authoritative all-seeing being will send you back the most uh, appropriate or right answer you could get from anyone. If I were to put your pictures and your names above everything you typed into that Google query box, you would be shocked and horrified the extent to which you share your true self. That'd get weird. Yeah, real fast. It's for everybody. Yeah, you share more with Google than you would your doctor, certainly your girlfriend or your mother. And it's um, so I think that's played the role of God. Now, Facebook, I believe, is love. One of the really wonderful things about our species is we not only need to be loved, but we need to love others. Babies that receive poor nutrition but a lot of affection generally have better outcomes than babies that have good nutrition and poor amounts of affection. So our ability to love others is is key to our survival as a, as a species and our productivity. And I think Facebook has given us the ability to scale that need and love at scale, mostly using pictures, which creates empathy and gives you an immediate attachment to somebody. So I think Facebook is love. Wait, did, love at scale? Is that a... Love you, at scale. Have you trademarked that? Could we, yeah. Can I have that? It's yours. <laughs> love at scale. I need something love to pay scale. off this school debt. Um, and then moving further down the torso, I think you get to the gut and our consumptive self. 
more death or early death or malady is likely been caused in our species from malnutrition or starvation. And so as a result, we have this you know, very deep-rooted sense of more, and that is always more, never enough. And if you open your closets or your refrigerators, you're going to see you have somewhere between 1, 10, and 100x what you actually need to survive. And whether it's China, Amazon, or Walmart, more for less has always been a, been a winning business strategy. And I think Amazon kind of speaks to our consumptive large intestine or gut, taking as much as you can for as little as possible and consume our consumptive selves. And then you move further down the torso to the genitals, and I think Apple effectively is sex. Uh, if you look at the luxury industry, which is arguably the most successful industry of the last 20 years, uh, more billionaires or more the wealthiest people in Europe are all or most of them are connected to the luxury business. The wealthiest family outside of Bloomberg in New York are the Lauders, Estee Lauder. They're primarily in the business of making more attractive to potential mates and signaling your attractiveness uh, to uh, potential mates and increasing your likelihood. Uh, your selection set. And I believe that the new luxury item that signals good genes is the iPhone. And Apple has taken a page out of luxury uh, luxury brands playbook and is appealing to our genitals uh, through direct distribution, iconic founder, artisanship, a signaling price premium that you can afford the best phone, which means that you're wealthier and more successful and have good genes. But I think Apple is really all about sex. So a need for a super being, need to love, need to consume, and a need to procreate. And I think that's the basis of these four firms. And we've disarticulated who we are and reassembled them in the form of for-profit companies. And as a result, have created market value that's now greater than the GDP of, of India. And I think it all, all goes back to our instincts. That's interesting, so, yeah. So what's missing? There's four organs. Is there anything... Is there any other organ or it's the eyeballs? Well, people ask. Yeah. People ask. Okay, what is Microsoft? So to carry the metaphor, Microsoft would probably work, right? Nike. Nike is an instinct around competition. Our competitive self is key to our our, our species evolving. That when I see you run a certain speed, I'm just naturally want to try and run faster. That competitive self. Netflix, I think, is joy and entertainment and storytelling is a huge part of our evolutionary uh, progress. We need, we need to be able to communicate to future generations that this is when you plant the harvest and this is when this is, de- you know, don't go over the hill or mean over there. So storytelling and entertainment are, are really important. So you could, you know, you can take the metaphor pretty far, but I would argue the only way you build a company worth more than $100 billion is you're very clear on what instinct it taps into. Going to write that down real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Love it scale. Million dollars. Love it Love scale, scale and hundred million dollars. I guess Alexa would be your ears. We don't need to continue the metaphor. I guess, yeah. but <laughs> it, it falls it falls apart pretty fast. Yeah, so yeah, we'll yeah. Just stick with the four. It's, it's, it's still kind of fascinating though because you know. The, in that explanation, we're just talking about primal biological things. We're not even talking about, we're not getting into like business jargon at all. And yeah, I mean, try to keep it real. The, is yeah. that the essence of the book? You know, it really comes from that biological primal understanding of why these things work and have been able to capture all of that value. Yeah, I think so. I, it's it, the it show me a company that's really scaling, and especially in the consumer world, and I'll show you a company that taps into something pretty, pretty base and instinctual. And we at business school, I think we like to think we're more evolved and that our graduate degrees and our subscriptions to the FT and the New York Times make us more thoughtful. And when you look at really what drives consumer behavior, it's about most of us get the survival box checked. Most of us don't wake up in the morning worried about survival. 
so then it becomes more about things like love and and procreation at your age. Is it plays a huge role in your decisions. If you really think honestly about the clothes you wear and the decisions you make about the money you spend and the signaling to others, you're kind of signaling to a, a pool of potential mates. If you think about the consumption and the reason you're a business school, it's because you have decided that you want a lot of material things in your life and you want the currency and the credibility. You also are very competitive. You've likely, if you've gotten here, you've been put in environments with other very competitive people and you strive and get tremendous reward from beating others. And as a result, you come to business school to gain the skills and the tools so you can run even farther, faster, and be smarter and stronger. And that's a very basic instinct because to just survive, you would probably need a lot less and have to work a lot less hard and make much fewer sacrifices than you're making now. Sure. I mean, these companies have only, like, thrived because we're so far past surviving. I mean, I don't need half the stuff I get on Amazon. I mean, I regret it sometimes when it shows up, but... Yeah, we have a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I keep on buying it. <laughs> Why do you think we want so much? Like, what is that? Well, so first off, um, I mean, I'm a marketing professor, you know, playing armchair evolutionary anthropologist here. A guy named Jeffrey Mitchell is really, the, the, he's done some great work. He wrote the book Spent in the Mating Mind. But the penalty for more is, is, you know, maybe gluttony. You could argue maybe diabetes. But all these things have a lag effect or don't really impact you in a bad way. And also in some ways, gluttony might signal, um, your, again, your attractiveness. So the guy or the gal that orders a bottle of Dom Perignon at Biblique and then sprays $400 champagne all over the room is signaling that he or she is so good at what they do during the day that they can afford to spray $400 champagne. And as a result, you should have children with that person because he will be able to protect your young. And I think it's that literally that, that base. The penalty for more is pretty minimal, and it's actually got a lot of upsides. The penalty for too little is starvation. Uh, it's it's uh, a dramatic uh, downgrade in your, your societal power and prestige because you'll be reliant on other people, whether it's the government or charity or philanthropy. So the quest for more in consumption is just so dramatic. And the people who, you know, it kind of craps me up when people talk about leading a simpler life. And usually when talk, people talk about leading a simpler life, it's because they've gotten to the point where they have tens of millions of dollars and they have that luxury <laughs> to talk about that. The option of a simpler life. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, so it's, but the, the notion of more in our consumptive self is, is you know, what, you're a bear, you take enough berries or whatever it is they take into the cave to hibernate, they wake up. So waste is the downside. They wake up in the middle of the winter without enough food. The downside is much more severe. So more is more is kind of always in fashion. So you, I'm guessing that you have recommended a biology class for the core of NYU Stern Business School. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't <laughs> and hurt, anthropology right? and yeah, no, it's evolutionary biology is pretty fascinating. Uh, I should probably do some biology because when you're talking about a bear, I was thinking, is it berries? Is that what they eat? Like berries, Leonardo DiCaprio. Those are the only two things I know bears put in their mouth. So I'll have to look it up later. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I did not. I don't know. <laughs> You're talking about um, you know people want more and, and stuff, but you recently gave some advice to people through a video. Um, you gave them career advice, and you said, yeah. "Hey, you're not going to take this career advice. Please forgive me. I'm paraphrasing." Sure. But one of the things you said is delayed gratification. Yeah. You know, you think that's you know really important for people in our generation. What yeah. did, why delayed gratification is such a cornerstone? 
Well, sure. So at the end of the day, success is largely dependent upon your ability to delay gratification and all the training and all the after school and all the studying and all the things we've attempted or society has attempted to teach you and drill into your head from the age of five is to turn you into little gratification delayers. Because it's much easier to go drink beers than it is to study. It's much more fun to go to Coachella than it is to save money uh, uh, for a house or your first apartment. So life and success is largely or, you know, hugely dependent upon your discipline around gratification delay. So uh, Einstein said that uh, the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest, which is essentially delay, you know, gratification delay. And so your ability to, inv- I mean, business school is an enormous, you know, gratification delay device. It's expensive. It's hard. There are things that, you know, while you guys manage to have a pretty good time, it's a, an enormous upfront investment that you'll recognize the ROI is delayed. But the notion that, I mean, it's pretty basic, right? You, you put a th- you put a thousand bucks aside every year from the age of 22, you're going to end up with a million bucks. Whereas if you start putting 25,000 aside at the age of 40, you don't get it. You don't get to a million. So starting early, uh, you know, wor- yeah, there's just so many examples here. Working out every day, eating well, it just all aggregates. That's right? another one you brought up in the in in the video, which you know you don't see in a lot of. I mean, you're the only person that's mentioned that mm-hmm. since I've been here at NYU Stern. You put in a video said, hey, you want to be successful? You know, work out every day. That's what yeah. all the CEOs do. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, I, I, there is a lot of evidence around. There was a survey done of what Fortune 500 CEOs have in common, and it wasn't Ivy League graduate degrees. It wasn't coming from wealthy families. A lot of them come from very modest beginnings. But one thing most of them had in common was that they were uh, they regularly exercised. And I believe, uh, and I think there's, and actually there's a decent amount of research around this. If you work out and you sweat, if not every day, three to five times a week, you're less prone to depression. You're more even keeled. You're more likely to, strange things, be more generous to other people and better to pets. You're more likely to be successful. And I think gaining confidence from being strong, I think strength is a really outstanding asset. And it's not about, uh, you need to be clear about this because you don't want to come across as fat shaming. It's not about being ripped. It's not about being skinny. It's about being a stronger version of yourself. And I think when you start to elevate your strength and see your progress around your ability to run, your ability to lift weights, your ability to do push-ups, pull-ups, I think it creates a sense of confidence and a sense of you know, for lack of a better term, strength that really serves you well across different aspects of your life. So for me, working out uh, has been a gift. Uh, it's it's my antidepressant, um, and it keeps me even keel. And it's been a huge, I think, advantage for me in the professional workplace. I just feel more confident. And like I say in the video that if, you know, if I was in a conference room and shit got real, I could kill and eat everybody. And... <laughs> And by the way, I'm not, not, rec- not recommending you do that. Yeah. But I think feeling feeling like a stronger version of yourself is a very rewarding, uh, instinctual, primal uh, feeling that serves you well professionally. And uh, finding time to sweat is just a uh, it's just a gift. And, and I think at your age, it's the time to start. I mean, you both look like you work out. We it's, exercise. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's really, if you don't start now, if you don't start at your age, it's very hard to catch up. It gets, yeah. gets harder and harder. Most so, people aren't Jeff Bezos. 
Oh my god, that guy's jacked. By getting richer, I think he it just made him have bigger muscles. <laughs> you should so share if you haven't seen a dude, Google it. Google it. Jeff Bezos yeah. when he was first started at Amazon. I don't know, Jeff. I think so he's I, been eating at Whole Foods a lot. No, yeah, maybe, no, no, only recently has he been eating at Whole Foods. <laughs> That's yeah. true. No, if you see Jeff Bezos from like a couple years ago, I, yeah. I don't want to offend Jeff, but I don't know him, Mr. Bezos. He looked like kind of like a skinny, nerdy guy. Yeah, I think he it, was. Now yeah. he's like... Yeah, you expect to see Andrew on the front screen of Amazon. He looks really jacked, and good for him. Yeah, good for him. Good for him. So I think something that you're picking up is that sort of your external environment perhaps should mirror or at least complement, like, internal. So, you know, you're, you're strong on the outside, which means you have a lot of psychological fitness and strength. Do you think that's part of the curriculum of brand strategy, you know, external appearances reflect this, the strength of the product itself? So let me be clear in terms of strength. Um, I don't want to be clear on this. I don't think, I think it's important when I preach about being strong, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you, you fit the aesthetic of a gym. Uh, so the aesthetic that Equinox wants you to believe for women, for guys, is that you're hugely ripped. Like a and, triangle. Yeah, and you just look like a water polo player who's on creatine seven times a day. And for women, it's be rail thin, but abnormally curvaceous, like have just sort of a biologically impossible body. I don't think that's, that's the message. Uh, with one of the things I love about CrossFit, which I got into about five, six years ago, is they celebrate women who I think a, a, a traditional media would find on the bigger side. And they celebrate, or we celebrate, their strength. And 60% of CrossFitters are women. And it's a place where we just celebrate strength, not this what I'd call traditional aesthetic. And knowing that you can you know, do 80 box jumps, regardless of whether you look strong or not. And, and the nice thing about CrossFit is you're always surprised. You look at someone and you try and sum up in shorthand how strong or how fast or how, what kind of, how fit they would be, and you're constantly surprised. Uh, so, but I think that 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 knowledge and that pushing through those limits and testing yourself in terms of strength are the things that give you the confidence. Looking great is fantastic, but looking great is a, not only a function of how hard you work out, but a function of your genetics. I'm never going to have hair, right? So, uh, and some people are never going to be tall, and some people are never yeah, going to be, and some people are just never going to be thin. It's just not the way they're built. But being a stronger version of you of something you can control, and it's very rewarding. Now, to your question around aesthetics, I tell the kids that dressing really well is something they can control. And if you expect to make six figures plus at the age of 27 and you expect to be in professions that you interact with a lot of other successful people, you want to control the easy stuff. And while dressing may not seem easy, there are other things that are much harder. And so living in New York, you should be able to either find the right clothes or find someone who can get you the right clothes such that on a scale of 1 to 10, you're always a solid eight or nine. And there's a reason why investment bankers and consultants you just always look really good. I think that stuff's important. Um, and I think spending a lot of, you know, spending a decent amount of time thinking about it. Uh, one of the things I proposed at Stern that was shot down was kind of helping kids or bringing in, we obviously are, you know, it's kind of the fashion center of the world, bringing in someone to really help kids take their wardrobe up and get, get it at, at a good price for kids. But I think it's an advantage to walk in and look. You can't you, if you don't have a deep voice, or if you don't, if you're not really articulate, if you're not, don't have, you know, great hair. You just, there's nothing you can do about that. But you can look, you can dress well. So, uh, anyways, uh, long story short, I think that stuff's important and it has a huge, a huge ROI. 
as I sit here in a t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> yeah, but it's a nice t-shirt and jeans. Thank you. Yeah, yeah but it's too late for me. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's, it's too late. But here's the thing, too, is like, you've kind of gotten to like t-shirt and jeans level. Like, you can wear whatever you want. You can come here to Toga if you want to. Toga, yeah, but that was my second. My, I said the dry cleaners, but thank you. You were looking at your yeah. closet between Toga yeah, and t-shirt. Yeah, Toga and jeans. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so like CrossFit, you're talking about like core strength. Like having yeah. substance, actual strength. You know, I wonder if that relates to brands, right? Because I think, I mean, obviously brands have changed over the years. You know, the the, the, the name alone used to mean a lot, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have a product in the name. I mean, uh, Professor Marciano, we're both mm-hmm. big fans, she says that students sometimes just bleat the word brand at her. Like that's the answer to everything. Yeah, she's great at that. <laughs> yeah, she's, um, I, I'm, I'm such a big fan of Sonia's. Um, so... Yeah, brand. I would argue that the era of brand is over. That from post World War II to call it the advent of Google, the algorithm for creating a ton of shareholder value was to come up with an average product, an average sugary drink, an average energy drink, an average shoe, an average car, and then wrap these amazing brand associations around it, make it a, a more American or European elegance or patriotism, whatever it might be, or be, you know, Harley-Davidson, a bad, Americana badass rebel, whatever it might be, and stuff the channel with these things, make sure the channel didn't didn't erode this imagery too much, and then use this incredibly efficient tool called broadcast media to pound and reinforce these associations. I think with the advent of Google, the sun has passed midday on brand. Now, why is that? Consumers can now, the new algorithm is a better product with better ingredients, farm to table, a better shoe, a better watch, whatever it might be, a better MBA program, and these new tools of due diligence that didn't exist, whether it's TripAdvisor, whether it's Amazon Reviews, whether it's Google, can get you literally to the best product. And you can see the reviews saying that, yeah, the the Crosby Hotel downtown is a better hotel. Don't don't spend the extra 100 bucks on the Ritz-Carlton. Even though it has the brand, you don't need to. And you can get the confidence to, to try or at least trial trial products in the long tail, whereas before we always deferred to the shorthand of brands. So what you're seeing in the marketplace is the largest brands across most consumer categories are shedding share to long tail brands, whether it's Allbirds tennis shoes cutting into some of the bigger tennis shoes companies, or if you look at your own food patterns, I would bet you're not buying stuff from Unilever, Conagra, Campbell's, you're buying, you know, some yogurt curdled in kefir, curdled yogurt in Brooklyn that you saw that Beyonce likes. But you now have the tools to find perfect long tail uh, brands that perfectly address your needs. Now, it's not to say the brands don't matter, but they aren't going to matter as much. And just being able to defer to brand equity, as I used to preach to the 80s and 90s, you have an average product. I started from called Profit Brand Strategy. The basic premise of Profit Brand Strategy was have an average product and then really focus on the intangible associations. I don't think that's true any longer. I think great products now break through. So a better mousetrap. Look at the firms that have added just so much value. The Googles, the, they have a 10x better product, and they're, it, it word gets out. So it's no longer a tree falling in the forest. So uh, I would argue the era of brand has passed midday. We're moving to kind of a new model. And unfortunately, the curriculums at business schools are sort of set up to train a kid to go get a job at General General Foods as a brand manager and then be laid off two years later as they start to reallocate more money out of broadcast advertising into into search. And we're trying to catch up as are all business schools. But we're definitely seeing – I'm not even sure we should have what I would call – a marketing department. I think IOMS and marketing should should merge, and we should call it something different. But well, brand is changing. What would you call it? 
maybe marketing analytics or I don't know data driven decision making or some other weird thing. How does this how does this new frontier of like marketing and branding fit in with? I mean, like the big four, and I mean, you have someone like Amazon, mm-hmm. who is, um, I mean, massive, and mm-hmm. they control so much, especially when it comes to, you know, consumer goods. I mean, what's that? What does that do to what you just said about brands? So, uh, Amazon, the only one of the four that spends a lot of money on traditional advertising is Apple, and Apple. If you look at Apple's analog, our closest competitor would be Samsung. And the difference between Samsung's marketing strategy and Apple's marketing strategy as it relates to building their brands, and they're both fantastic brands, is that Samsung significantly over-indexes on broadcast advertising and even online advertising relative to Apple. It spends somewhere between double and triple what Apple does, even as a percentage of its top-line gross revenue. And so what does Apple do with that money that they're not spending on advertising? They've reallocated it actually into the channel, and that is they've opened 512 temples to the brands called Apple stores, whereas Samsung still continues to distribute through Verizon and AT&T and Vodafone stores. So the brand has moved to, if you will, the point of distribution because this broadcast Valerium Steel-like tool called advertising is getting duller and duller. Why? Because you guys don't watch ad-supported TV anymore. You watch Netflix or you download something from iTunes, but you're just not sitting in front of a screen for five hours and getting served ads for Budweiser. You're just like, I'll skip the ad or I'll watch Stranger Things and I don't see the ads or whatever, the, whatever it is you guys, you guys watch. But the other three don't spend hardly any money on advertising. What they spend all their money on is innovation. And Amazon, which is you know, probably the most, I think it's the most trusted retail brand in the world, has made this enormous investment in fulfillment. And no one would have thought, wow, that's how you build the next great retail brand is by investing in a back-end fulfillment network. But that truly is an example of, okay, this isn't marketing or branding. This is a real product. You know, it's transoceanic shipping licenses and tractor trailers and distribution centers uh, and that and logistics and that stuff is, you know, about as far from marketing and branding as you can get. So the, 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 ability, the ability to build irrational margins uh, is still dependent upon uh, brand, but the way you build brand now is more through innovation. Now, what do we mean by innovation? Different ways to discover the product online, a better mousetrap, a different way to buy it a different way to connect with people who are also using the product that makes it more fun. But the notion that you can take an average product, get a spokesperson, make people feel hip or cool, and that that will sustain the brand, that will sustain, you know, your margins, I just think those days are are limited, maybe even, you know, and soon soon over. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. All I do know is that you now don't have to even, like, touch anything to order something from Amazon. Yeah, you I was just, about to say, like, ease of use. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's only getting more easy to skip the part where you go to the store and you, like, look for the label you want. Yeah. You know, or the commercial influences you. It's that whole Alexa thing. I, I have I have a friend, his name's Drew. Great guy. He has an Alexa in his house, and I went to go see it in his house, and he said, Alexa, turn the lights down 50%, and down the lights went. <laughs> that thing is powerful. And, like, people are using it for, like, all sorts of things. There's, there's other ways to get products now that that advertising isn't going to affect you. You literally just speak it into existence, which is creepy Well, you, you think you, about it. You bring up Alexa. So think about some of the levers of brand building with traditional CPG brands. There's First off, there's pricing, right? And we need to move the product. I think a lot about the price. It's sort of appealing to you and feels like a decent value. There's packaging, which is hugely important. What's aesthetically appealing? A certain baby 
stuff for baby has a different color scheme than stuff for, you know, stuff for adults or stuff for millennials. There's eye level where, you know, where it actually is on the shelf. There's the end cap, the thing that sells it in the store. And between pricing, in-store promotion, packaging, there are all these levers that CPG companies have spent billions of dollars and decades developing and mastering. And all of those things literally disappear with voice. And the number of times a brand is used as the prefix to an Alexa command or a Google search query is declining every day. So people no longer say, put Lagunitas IPA beer in my cart, Alexa. They say IPA beer. And pretty soon, with artificial intelligence and Amazon knowing what you want, you're just going to say beer. And you don't even know what the price is because you're not even on the Amazon platform. So... All these levers that traditional CPG companies and brand managers that we've been spitting out into the marketplace, they go away. And the new brand builders or the new people who are dictating the products that we buy are the engineers in voice. And there are people who design algorithms that figure out what is the price they can charge, look at a combination of user reviews, stockouts, is the product available? What is your purchase history? Do I have your credit card? And then they will serve you the product. They'll have so much authority that some of the other traditional brand metrics that move you towards the eye-level product that looks fun, that looks like it's on good price, and it has this end cap of Tom Brady drinking Bud Light. And I think I like Tom Brady. Oh, yeah, it's good on, pick. It's on sale, right? Yeah. He didn't deflate those footballs. There you go. <laughs> All that's going away. Uh, or uh, So it, we're really entering a new era where we have sort of this algorithmically-based economy. If you look at... The S&P 500, only 13 stocks have outperformed the S&P 500 for the last, I think it's the last seven years, and, or no, the last five years. And it's gone up an average of, I think, 5 or 7% a year. And there's very few companies, only 13, that have outperformed the S&P every year for, for five straight years. And nine of the 13 are algorithmically driven, companies like Google, companies like Priceline, where they basically take information in, learn from it, and then spit out a better product. They age in reverse, if you will. Most companies, whether it's Unilever or General Motors, the moment they produce a product, it starts aging. A car, a detergent, the moment it comes off the shelf or off the assembly line, it starts declining in value. Every time you search, the Google algorithm gets a little bit better for the next person who searches. Because if you search for New York MBA program, and then you click on a program, it informs the algorithm for the next person that searches and gives them a better choice quicker. So usage actually makes the product more valuable. It's a, well, I refer to them as Benjamin Button companies. <laughs> they age in reverse. And if you look at the companies adding tens of billions of dollars in value every year, they age in reverse. They're these companies that are algorithmic, algorithmically driven, they get better and better. And people say, well, what about Amazon? Their products age. But look what Amazon's been able to do with user reviews. The more people who use Amazon, the more data they have, and the easier they make it for you to get to the right product. The more people who use Voice and Alexa and the more people who have Prime, it, literally they're making it cheaper and cheaper and just this, this value you can't refuse. So they're trying to tap into this whole Benjamin Button um, economy as well. But these traditional brand levers are going away. Well, that, but that's kind of creepy, Sherry. I mean, like, that, that is to say that Amazon's going to know what you want before you want it, which is 
Weird. We want our listeners to hear it here first. What's the next prophecy? Yeah, what's the next prediction? Yeah, what's were, the next, next prediction? prediction? Well, because you were way out ahead of that Whole Foods Amazon thing. I was you know, just lucky. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay. I mean, was really lucky. Oh, man. Do you want us to edit that part out? Because no, it made you look fine. cool. <laughs> it made you look cool. I don't, yeah. I don't mind being wrong. Um, predictions, predictions are fun. It's like, predictions are like plans. And Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is invaluable. And I feel the same way about predictions. I make a lot of predictions, and I get them wrong a lot. So predictions are useless, but predicting is valuable because you you know you discuss it. And why? Well, why do you think that? So I would say so a prediction. Um, you're going to see I think companies like Unilever and PNG merge because their only way to add shareholder value right now is to cut costs. So you're going to see this incredible wave of consolidation. I guess those are kind of my only sort of predictions that I'm I'm confident right now. I think you're going to see Snapchat go below ten or eight bucks and then be sold to Google. You're not a fan uh, of that Snapchat thing as far as... I think it's a great company. I think maybe it's worth a billion dollars, which is incredible. But right now, what is it, 12 or 15? So I, I think a lot of these companies are great companies. I just think they're dramatically overvalued. I think Twitter's going to go below 10 bucks a share and probably be um, an activist still going there. Um, Who's our new dean for NYU Stern? Yeah, that's there you go. Make that one. So <laughs> I have I have my favorite. I, I know who it should be, but I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to alienate people. But I think it... Uh, we have a lot of great, inter- one of the wonderful things about Stern is we have, we really do have a strong faculty. If you talk to other schools, one thing that Stern no- is known for is we have a really strong deep bench and there's several very strong internal candidates. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to be in good shape. It's exciting. That's cool. You know, when it comes to the four mm-hmm. and they're got, they've gotten so big, I mean, I'd like to know, I mean, this is sort of a prediction. I'd like to know how they respond because... I mean, if you're mm-hmm. not one of the four, let's say you're Walmart, mm-hmm. do you just, you know, buy gold, accumulate cans, and get a foil hat? Is it the apocalypse, or is there something you can do? Well, th- there is, and they're doing it. And and I think the controversy or the battle between Amazon and Walmart has been a bit overblown, because if you look at what Amazon's trying to do, they're trying to own affluent households in America. That's who they're going after. And Walmart wants to own everyone else. Walmart's more middle- and lower-income households. So there's some overlap there. They definitely need to keep an eye on each other. But the reason people match them up against each other is Walmart was the most dominant retailer of the 90s, and Amazon's shaping up to be the most dominant retailer of, of, of this decade. Uh, uh, so immediately the comparisons stops, uh, start. But I don't think they directly, if you will, compete with each other as much as people think. Now, Walmart... Just an outstanding firm run by incredibly smart people with incredibly smart a- assets or incredibly valuable assets. They're doing a good job. If you look, what they've tried to do is grab the mic back from Amazon and announce their own acquisitions, their own internet efforts, such that they, you know, if you look at the media, the media I feel is kind of turned into Amazon's investor relations group. They're just obsessed with Amazon, and what Walmart's trying to do is grab the mic back a little bit. I think the future for a place like Walmart is click and collect. If you look at the American population, I bet somewhere between 60 and 70% of it doesn't need to go out of the way more than three or five minutes on their way home or to work to stop at a Walmart store and pick up whatever it is they need. So click and collect is going to be a really big thing at Walmart. Their acquisition of Jet.com, which I thought was a mistake and they overpaid for, I was wrong. It looks like it was a great acquisition because they've been able to report year-on-year e-commerce growth of 60% plus, which makes them look hip and cool and like they get it again, which is worth, you know, worth more than 1% of their market cap, which is what they paid for um, Jet.com. So I think 
think Walmart's doing a great job. So I think they're doing it. They're not befuddled prey. They're responding. There's nothing wrong with Walmart that can't be fixed with what's right with Walmart. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan. So who wins, Amazon or Walmart? I think the answer is yes. I think they're both going to do pretty well. Hmm. Hmm. I'm sure over the course of your professional life yeah. um, here at Stern, there are a couple of students that have really stuck out to you. And yeah. I'm just sort of wondering, I mean, you've, you said you've taught, what, 5,600? 5, Something like that, it's, yeah. Which is incredible. Um, what makes what makes you most proud about your classroom and about your students? And are there a couple who have really taken your learnings and done something with them? I wouldn't say that there's there's sort of two or three I could name. And one of the unfortunate things about having classes get bigger is that you, I don't want to see you all blend in, but there's a lot of you. And so I don't. I don't. I, I, if you said who are your two or three favorites, I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't tell you. There's a ton of kids who've gone on to do super impressive things. So it's. But yeah, it, it sounds terrible. But it's like if you said who are your two, or who, what two or three students have really stood out, I wouldn't be able to tell you. And we have, you know, Stern is Stern has to institutionalize the process. So in spring, I think I'll have 160 or 170 students in my class. And I'm terrible with names. I'm terrible with faces. So I'll remember my TAs, and that's about it. You, what you remember is I'll meet with a ton of students during the semester. You think these kids are really impressive. The kids that have stood out to me, I think, in the last few years are the kids who are here on um, kind of what is the GI Bill or the scholarship we got from the Fertitta Brothers. Fertitta uh, Fellowship. Yeah, I worked yeah. with them this summer uh, when they, they came in for the first time. Yeah. They're hugely impressive, those guys. Yeah, the guys are impressive, but the, the veterans that we've been attracting to the business school, those people stand out for me. Just those young men and women are just so know, just so impressive. They seem so resolute, so earnest, the sacrifice and the commitment they've made for our country and then trying to come back to school. I just am just super Im- impressed with them. Uh, those are the ones that I would say would stand out. Other than that, they all seem like good kids trying to make their way. The the veterans community here is is tremendous. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know what? It, it's it's a fairly new thing. And every class, I'll have six, a half a dozen to a dozen kids vets, and uh, we didn't we just didn't have them ten years ago. Uh, so this. This scholarship or whatever, the program that the Fertitta Brothers, it's just such a fantastic program. It's just, a, you know, meaningful, right, as opposed to the kid coming out of Blackstone is going to go work at Goldman. I mean, that stuff's really important, too, but sure. uh, producing super talented people and giving them some skills to, you know, stand watch for our country, that feels that feels meaningful, too. I think NYU Stern actually is making a attempt to be the number one MBA school for veterans. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I, I don't know if they're advertising it that way, but there's a there's a consensus among some of the, the veteran students here that that's sort of happening. Yeah. Because that Fertitta program is very generous. Yeah. Um, and I think the veterans program here is very tight. And I think they, people feel appreciated here. Is there anything else that um, you want to say that you don't cover in all of your other mediums? You know, just uh, the difference in this medium is that it's it's stern, and uh, I think we're all super fortunate to be here, to be in New York. New York right now, I spend a lot of time on the road, and New York is the, the most relevant city in the world right now. Uh, that You just don't find the amalgam or the concentration of grit, creativity, financial success uh, that you see in New York. So to be here... 
studying, to be here teaching, it puts you kind of in the top 1% of the most fortunate people in the world. I think the NYU is an outstanding institution. I think we have great leadership. Peter Henry is not only a, a great leader, but he's a, he's a wonderful man, which is nice. It's easy to, you know, he's someone who's easy to follow and get behind. Uh, and so I think when I was in business school, I went to Haas, and I'm now very involved in the program there. Uh, my advice or what I would urge kids is to really take the time to be in the moment and realize what a wonderful experience and platform this is and to take advantage of it. Because uh, to be in New York now, to be in New York, uh, you know, uh, at this institution, it's um, it's a great, uh, fantastic place to be. We're all very fortunate. Yeah, before you, you came in, I, we, we knew, obviously, we're in very different backgrounds, the three of us sitting at this table. But we knew that we all had something in common, which is that we love NYU Stern, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, it has been the best experience that we've ever had. And you talked about Peter Henry, just a mm-hmm. second ago, you know, we had a, a podcast with him last semester that we did, just pretty mm-hmm. good. You don't need to listen because I'm sure you talk to him all the time. But he went when he was done with that. I would have followed him into any situation he wanted because he yeah, was very inspiring and genuine. And I think he's very earnest. I have a story about Peter. So I just heard we had hired this guy from uh, Stanford, and I, I saw the, the the announcement on our website, and I saw a picture of him, so I knew what he looked like. And I had just come back from the gym on a Sunday downtown, and I remember I picked up a Gatorade because I was really hungover, and I'd, I had I wasn't hydrated enough. <laughs> and I'm rolling out of the 7-Eleven looking like warmed over death, and I see this big, handsome guy walking out of Grace Church with his mother, uh, kind of arm in arm, holding her. So the first time I saw Peter Henry was him leaving church with his mother. And that guy, he's literally... He's lived up to that. He's like this guy who just uh, is is always you know wants other people to win, and uh, you know it's kind of one of these sort of unreal types types of characters. But that was the first <laughs> the first time I ever saw uh, Dean Henry was leaving church with his mother. He might as well have been wearing angel wings, something like <laughs> that. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, we're now, fighting crime. Now we're really sick of fans here. Football player, Rhodes Scholar. Yep. What PhD for is it MIT? I mean, oh, it's just sort of unreal. Anyway, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm obviously a big fan of Peter's. Yeah, we're really gonna we're really gonna miss him yeah. too. We're <laughs> glad we had him on the show because you know he wrote an email to students. Yeah. You know we don't read a lot of emails sometimes, especially if they're longer, and you don't get a chance to have a long conversation. And he doesn't get a chance to have a long conversation with the students about what he what his vision is and what and what he cares about. And I think I'm glad that students got to hear what he really thinks mm-hmm. and feels for an hour or so and we also we told him like you know students love you mm-hmm. like and that isn't an accident at all i mean honestly uh you know good le- leadership when you see it mm-hmm. and when we left that room i was like is he running for office because i would vote for him <laughs> yeah i would vote for him right away yeah. well everybody thought every when peter first came a lot of people thought it, he was going to be here a couple years and go to washington and he stuck it out for eight years or however long he's been here and i think it's like what you said before i mean i think i mean sherry maybe you got the sense too I think he, he's so earnest about the things he says about this school and what he, mm-hmm. he's tried to do. He's going to be big shoes to fill, not just because he's very tall and I'm sure he wears a large shoe, but, but, but figuratively. That was bad. That was bad. Yeah. <laughs> you sure. should edit that out. Yeah. Uh, so you haven't picked up on the fact that we're super cheesy. Yeah. yeah. I'll throw in some jad, dad jokes through an entire podcast. You were very tolerant of them, so yeah. thank you no so much. You know, you're a guy who's here who's internet famous. 
I've seen you write. I've seen you write pseudo internet famous. Plus, mm-hmm. yeah, you're internet famous. Millions of views on YouTube. All right. I mean, you've dozens got and dozens of fans. Dozens of fans. Yeah. A throng of dozens of fans. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you founded L2. You're right. named one of the 50 best professors for business school in the world. I mean, you've done it. You made it. You're top it's of, over. You've made, it's over. <laughs> <about. laughs> no, but here's the no, but this is what I'm really curious about. Is I mean, now what? Now what is next for you? Uh, more of the same, you know. I'm really enjoying myself. I love teaching. I still got a lot to accomplish professionally. So yeah, by all means, I got a, I got a lot. I got a lot of boxes still left to check. I don't think I've first 50 years of my life have been mostly about me, and and I want to spend more time focused on other people. And but yeah, I don't. I just want to keep doing more of the same. Yeah, I got my first book coming out. Got more students to teach. So there's a there's a ton to do. I'm. You know, I'm hoping I'm at letter, letters D and E, not at letters X and Y. Yeah, and just again for people that are listening, um, you need to go to Amazon, uh, wherever you get your books, not Borders. Where do people get books from? They can get it anywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Get it <laughs> yeah, so go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. And the Strand. Pick, the Strand. I don't know where people buy books, but buy the book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. It's going to be one of the best books of the year, and you're going to want to be the first one to read it so you can talk to people at the water cooler and seem real cool. There you go. So, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having me. So much. Good luck on your us. second year. You, what you may not have heard is that any sort of background in this, we have none. We have no background in this at all. Well, you, you wouldn't know it. You guys are just, I mean, this is seamless. Oh, yeah? <laughs> what? I'll probably keep that part in, and uh, for a radio audience, me and Sherry just high five. There you go. Good. Yeah. Did you Thank have fun? You. Yeah, I did. Thanks for having me. That's good. That's good. That would mission accomplished. Good. Good stuff, guys. Thanks. Okay.